there's a part of me that wishes I could just give Torah for free, right? Ultimately, it's not Torah that I'm giving. That was given to us many years ago already. What I'm giving is my thoughts on Torah. And what I'm giving is my time. And what I'm giving is my understanding of what people before me have said of their, you know, much more important and worthy thoughts on Torah. And those are the things that do belong to me to some degree. And I want to share them with the world, but I can't share them with the world if I don't have food on my table. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. There's an unfortunate tendency to assume that people in certain specific professions are happy to work for free. And sometimes, perhaps that's true. I expect that in an emergency situation on Shabbat, for example, many doctors would be happy to help out a friend without any expectation of payment. On the other hand, if a person pulls a doctor out of a shul kiddush in order to effectively schedule an impromptu appointment for a non-emergency, thereby obviating the need to go to his office on Monday, that same doctor might feel somewhat used. Many professionals who work in Jewish education, rabbis, teachers, and others, have run into this problem repeatedly. For whatever reason, there's often an assumption that these professionals should teach, officiate, lecture, and more as a service without any expectation of being paid. And speaking as someone who has experienced this tendency personally, it can be very frustrating. Sarah Rudolph brought this issue to light in an article published in The Forward in October 2018, entitled The Injustice of Asking Jewish Educators to Do Unpaid Work. The article resulted in significant online discussion, and Sarah was kind enough to discuss the issue on today's podcast. Sarah Rudolph is a Jewish educator and freelance writer. She has been sharing her passion for Jewish texts of all kinds for over 15 years, with students of all ages. Sarah's essays have been published in a variety of internet and print media, including the Times of Israel, Kveller, Jewish Action, OU Life, Lairhouse, Tradition, Jew in the City, and much more. She serves as editor-at-large for Dirachecha, womenemitzvot.org. Sarah lives in Ohio with her husband and four children, and learns online with students all over the world through webyeshiva.org. Sarah Rudolph, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. For the second time, because this is actually our second <laughs> attempt after our audio broke down. Keeps everything real. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about an article you wrote last October, October 2018, entitled The Injustice of Asking Jewish Educators to Do Unpaid Work. When I read that article, it really struck a chord with me. As someone involved in Jewish education and Jewish communal service in general, many of us are expected to work for very little money and often for free. I want to open up by asking you, what exactly spurred you to write this particular article? Was there an event that happened? Well, there's an ongoing event or conversation that happened. Um, I want to try to be vague and not, you know, give any details away. There's something that I was working on, a project that I was working on for an institution. And there was somebody in that institution who sort of made it abundantly clear overtly, not just implicitly, but, you know, actually said that he didn't think I should be paid for the work that I was doing. He actually said that to you? Yes. I think one of the things he said to me was that he, I was raised, uh, he, you know, I'm quoting, um, was raised to believe that we give back to our communities. And I said, that's very nice for you. I, I happen to know that this is somebody who comes from 
a wealthy family business. Um, and I think it's beautiful to give back to communities. I also try to give back to my community in many ways, but this is also part of my professional life. And it was really beating down on me. And I felt like I kept having, I kept feeling like I had to justify myself and explain to him the value of my time, the value of my expertise, the value of my professionalism in what I was bringing to this job. And this is something that I do professionally that I'm not offering and I'm not able to offer or willing to offer as a volunteer service. I kept having to point out also, Tim, that the amount that I was asking was really not even enough to cover the childcare that I needed for the time to do the, the thing. So really what I was asking was not even to be paid and make a profit on this. It was to minimize the loss of money uh, from my own pocket that I was giving to this. So in fact, I was volunteering. I just felt increasingly like it was ridiculous that I had to justify myself and feel so small and gross every time I talked to him about it. And did he accept your argument or not? I, I think he finally stopped bringing it up. I mean, there was a little bit, bit of a rotation involved, a natural rotation involved in his position. So I ended up not dealing with him directly about it anymore. Um, I don't know if he feels any differently in all of the responses that I got when I wrote that article. I was waiting for that one. I was, I was hoping to hear from this one individual that, oh, you really made me see things differently. And I didn't. Um, I did hear that from other people, which was gratifying. Did you have um, a really strong response from the article? Did a lot of people mention it to you as something which resonated with them? Yes, it was amazing. Uh, it was very validating and gratifying. Um, people told me, I mean, people contacted me with horror stories that they had been through of, you know, I'm so glad you said this. Do you, let me tell you what happened to me. You know, people were telling me things that happened 30 years ago that's still great on them. It's, it's painful. It's painful to be taken advantage of. It's painful to feel like you have to explain yourself and your professionalism and the value of what you have to offer and to justify not living in rags because you are not offering it for free. You know, it was very nice to hear. It was upsetting to hear the stories that people had been through. It was more positive when I heard from a few people that they had actually used my article when they were then subsequently offered, asked to do something for no pay. And they sent my article um, uh -huh. to try to, you know, help in there, make their case and explain the problems with that request. How about on the other side? Were there people who were not Jewish educators, but had hired educators who told you, wow, you really changed the way I see things? I remember at least one who did. Mostly I heard from Jewish educators or their spouses um, <laughs> about and you're know, really feeling like that or just, you know, wow, this is great that you said this. Ironically, I should be vague about this also. There was one person who responded to me very positively, contacted me and was very supportive and you know, told me how wonderful it was and how important it was that I said it. Somebody who, in fact, had been in a position to offer me um, some paid work and had not been doing so. <laughs> so that was a little bit ironic. You know, I think uh, very often people just don't realize. And, you know, sometimes you just have to say it and sometimes you have to say it a little bit more clearly and emphatically. Well, that leads to the question, Sarah. Why is it that so many Jewish educators and other professionals in Jewish communal service run into this assumption that they should do their work for free or for a nominal fee rather than an actual living wage? I think there are a lot of reasons for a lot of different people. It's hard to pinpoint that. I think for some people, you know, I like to think, I hope that it's not because they don't value what we have to offer. Um, hopefully they wouldn't, you know, if they're asking for it, that implies that they have some degree of value for it. And I hope that they do. Uh, but I think people don't see it as essential. You know, they expect to pay for groceries. They don't expect to pay for or, you know, the extras in life that, you know, beautify their lives. Um, I have many friends who are writers and editors, and when I do that also, there are expectations there, there are too, that people see these as sort of extra bonus, a nice thing. They don't necessarily see it as a profession or even, you know, certainly people who sell products, right? That's very easy. Somebody, people understand the costs that 
it takes to, to make a product and you have to sell the product and you get something back. People understand that that's very simple economics. And people do understand, I think, that they have to pay for doctors or lawyers, um, therapists, a yoga class. I don't know. People understand these things more for some reason, but I think people don't often think of Jewish education as a profession that requires training and skill and as a life, you know, it's a career and not just like a cute little thing that I happen to do. I think part of it also is people don't realize the time. People are shocked sometimes when I tell them how long it takes me to prepare a class. When somebody thinks that they're asking me to take, oh, just, just an hour out of your shop this afternoon to give a talk, they don't realize the hours upon hours, in addition to the stress, but <laughs> hours upon hours of you know, thought and analysis and research and developing an idea and putting that together and making the source sheets and formatting, you know, all of these things. I'm gratified sometimes when I hear from Jewish educators how long it takes them to prepare their classes. There is a lot of preparation, obviously. And people just don't get that if they're not in it. And there are certainly people who, you know, carry around a lot of, you know, packaged shirim in their back pocket and have something ready at all times. But I'm not like that. And I think most of us are not like that. And it really, you know, even if I could give the hour, I can't give the however many hours beforehand. Can you tell me about some of the times, certain instances where you had to turn down the opportunity to teach because they weren't offering enough money or any money. Let me hear a story uh, or two. I was going to say, how many stories do you want? <laughs> um, I think the hardest, the most intense, I guess, the hardest in, in the terms of being the most intense was the first time, uh, which I actually wrote about in this article. There was a, an institution, I'm going to try to be vague again, um, that I had a sort of complicated history with, um, but they offered me a small job that was working with students one-on-one. I loved the students. It was work that I desperately wanted to do. I was honored they asked me, you know, despite whatever we had been through together in the past, um, that they wanted me for this. And it was something I knew I would be good at, that I really wanted to do. And they weren't going to not pay me. They were going to pay me. But the amount was so low, they admitted as such and said, and the line that I quoted in my article was, we hope you would do it partly as a, as a chesed. And I thought about it and I did the math. And I had a baby at home, my first, and I had to pay for a babysitter and I just couldn't do it. I said, for this pay, when you factor in the babysitter and the taxes and the gas, I might be able to pay for a cup of coffee with it. Hmm. And that's just not, I just couldn't do it. And there was, you know, I've wondered over the years if I had done it, if maybe it would have led to something, right? There's such a thing as investment in Jewish education also, but we don't always have what to invest, right? And at that point in my life, um, between the baby, between my sense of self-respect, I just didn't feel like that was something that I could take on. I hope that that was the right decision. I don't think I could have made a different decision at the time, but it was very painful. It was very painful to, to have to call them and say, no, I, I, this is not a chesed that I can do right now. I'm sure. It's got to be hard. And there are more ongoing things also. You know, There's a local weekly partners in, pro- in Torah program that I've lived in Cleveland for almost 10 years now. And at various points over those 10 years, people who are affiliated with this program will say, oh, why don't you come be a mentor, Chavrisa? And I, and I say, of course, this is something that is right up my alley that I should do and I would love to do, but I teach in the evenings. I can't give another evening if I'm not working, right? If I can't call it work, I would love to do more writing, but some of the venues that I feel like I really have something to say that would match those venues just don't pay and I just can't do it. Uh, it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard to, to not do that. In that case, Sarah, if an organization doesn't have enough money to pay, and they just can't afford to pay for extra classes or extra lectures, let's say it's a shul or a school or any type of organization which itself is being funded by Tzedaka, how do you feel? Should they just not ask? Meaning, is it almost insulting to ask? Or should they ask and be upfront that they can't pay very much or nothing at all? Or what exactly are they supposed to do? So 
from my perspective, you know, I don't know that there are objective standards on any of this. Um, I believe in respect and I believe in being upfront. I totally understand that not everyone has the money. I also don't have the money. That's why I need to pay, make money. You know? And it's reasonable and it's totally reasonable. And there are plenty of people who can do it. There are times that I can do it. I like to tell the story about a different organization that I've done a lot of work for actually countless hours over recent months. I don't remember how long it's been who told me up front that they can't pay me, but they said they've been so appreciative and so valuing and so upfront and honest and respectful about it that it's a joy to work for them. And I, you know, every once in a while we'll see if there's anything, you know, and has anything changed budget wise? Like I'll, I will remind them every once in a while that it would be easier for me to do my best work for them um, if I could give it more time and that would require being paid. Um, but in the meantime, they're just so appreciative that, you know, it's almost like I'm being paid in my, in, you know, a boost to my ego and my, and my self-value. And I think that if you're able to do that, right, I think the bottom line is you have to be honest and you have to be upfront and you have to not make the person ask, right? It's the people who come to me and ask me to do something. And I have to be the one to sort of finagle into the conversation, you know, some way to get past all of my uh, altruism and all of my passion for Torah and be able to work past all of those feelings and say, and will, are you planning to pay me, right? And find some way to ask that respectfully and nicely and without feeling gross about it. And that's when I think it's really a problem. You know, if people can't pay, then they can't pay, but they shouldn't, it shouldn't be an expectation that I'll be able to do it. And they need to ask and be honest upfront and not wait for, for the person they're asking to have to bring up the money issue. So would you say in that case that it's fair in theory for a shul or a school or an organization to tell you we can't pay you, but the main thing is to be upfront about it and say, you deserve to be paid. We just don't have the money. And that's your decision at this point, rather than forcing you to ask. Is that really the issue? Exactly. And then if the answer is no, then the answer is no. And to be understood. It's the understanding that you're asking and not expecting and understanding the person may or may not say, be able to say yes or want to say yes. And whatever their reasons are, uh, nobody owes anyone a, an explanation for not volunteering their time for whatever project. If it's a no, then it's a no. You know, we might say the same thing about a paid opportunity, right? I might, I might not take every paid opportunity either for my own reasons. And that's something that people, people need to respect. And I really think it's so important to be upfront. There was a group of, of women who approached me years ago to do like a small class with them. And, you know, the woman first started talking, I wasn't sure where she was going with it, but she very quickly said, you know, and how much would you, would you charge for this? And I could have hugged her, like, you know, just for, just for saying that. And they, and they, every time we would get together, they pay me right away at the beginning. I don't have to ask for it. It really feels special and important. And if they had said to me, we'd love to word, learn with you, but we were not able to pay you. Is that something you could do? I may or may not have said yes, but it's, it really makes a huge difference to not have to be the one to bring it up. You know, in my own experience, almost as difficult as the assumption that teaching or religious services should be free, it's the look of astonishment on someone's face when I mention that I expect to be paid. Obviously, many people don't look astonished at all, and they say, of course, that's totally understandable, but I've had people look at me like a, a complete hypocrite, like I'm an insanely chutzpahic person for doing so. Have you experienced anything like that as well? Um, I think the the person that I mentioned probably the most. Uh, I've had a couple of people, you know, sort of express surprise to come across the information that I was getting paid for something that I did. But in those cases, even I was never sure what what was behind the surprise. Sometimes, you know, it's different when they're just hearing about it and not the ones who I'm asking to actively pay me. But I think there is definitely that feeling. And I think that's that sort of gross, small feeling that, that I was talking about. That's why I wanted to publish my article to make, just to wake people up a little bit and realize 
what these expectations are and where the problems are with these expectations and what they do to us, you know, psychologically, emotionally, you know, it's, it's painful to be expected to have to feel like people are looking at you like, like, like you said, it's like some kind of hypocrite, like you don't really believe in what you're doing, like you're just in it for the money. I used to joke with my students um, years ago, I had a high school class, they were joking with them, guys, if I were in this for the money, I wouldn't be in it. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of fields that, that could you know, be much more lucrative in the world than Jewish education, even when we are paid. I don't know anyone who's in Jewish education for the money. We're in it because we love it. That should be the bottom line assumption. And we need to get paid. It's a profession. And when people give those looks, that's why I want my article, that's why I want to be able to to spread this and have sort of a, a hands-off, you know, objective conversation about it so that for all of us in the, in the moment that we shouldn't have to feel that, that smallness. You know, what you just said really raises a type of internal paradox almost, because we always hear about the serious problems with the high cost of Jewish education, that the cost is through the roof. And when I hear about the cost of day schools in the United States, I'm in Israel, but when I hear about those costs, it is so high, it's almost unbelievable. And at the same time, we also hear something which is equally true. Teachers are ridiculously underpaid, at least many of them are in many schools. Right. And as you said, if we were in Jewish education for the money, we wouldn't be in Jewish education at all. How does we solve that problem? In other words, Jewish educators are oh, real professionals <laughs> with serious, <laughs> there we go, serious educational backgrounds, major training, much more so than people in other professions who make a lot more money, and that's fine. But Jewish educators shouldn't be underpaid. Do you have any suggestion or any idea of what a solution to this problem could be, the quandary? I wish that I did. I'm in the tuition question from the parent side. I haven't worked in a in a school, you know, in that kind of formal setting for a while. You know, I did, I won't buy a ton in a few high schools, you know, from the parent side. So I have tuitions to pay like anyone else. Um, people wonder all the time, where is that gap? And I've seen, you know, articles and comments online where people People seem to assume that teachers and principals must be overpaid because where else is the money going? I don't know. Thank, fortunately for me, I'm not in those those discussions and in that you know side of the financial you know working everything out. Um, but I can guarantee you that nobody I've ever encountered encountered in Jewish education is being overpaid or becoming rich off of it. It just doesn't happen. And you know where the money is going. I think people have a lot of high standards for their kids' education, rightfully, and it's very hard to give everyone everything that everyone would like to have that we that everyone wants to give everyone and be able to also pay all of the teachers fully and also do everything and also keep the costs low it's very difficult so i'm not involved in the math of it but it's definitely a challenge sarah how would you define the difference between for example giving a devar torah to kiddish which no one would really expect someone to be paid for i would assume unless they were a scholar in right. residence and giving a full-fledged class in other words when is it fair for a shul or organization to expect someone to teach without payment? Where exactly is that line drawn? It's not that easy of a question. It's not that easy of a question. I, I've thought about this a lot. I, the answer I say today, you know, might not be the way that I frame it, that I framed it six months ago or the way that I'll frame it six months from now. It's, it's a question uh, because we are not just professional educators. We are community members. And, you know, there's an analogy. Actually, I'm just thinking about this part now also, <laughs> you know, there's always often a comparison to be made. Well, other professions, do other professions have people asking them to do things for free? Mm -hmm. So my husband's a doctor. He's a neurologist. Thank God it's not a useful profession for most people in my neighborhood. We would really appreciate if he had decided to go into pediatrics. We do get the occasional knock at the door on a Friday night and he's happy to do it. Maybe if he were a pediatrician and it happened more often, he wouldn't be as happy as happy to do it. Um, but for, you know, for what it is, he gets the occasional phone call, we get the occasional knock and that's fine. Uh, he's a member of the community and he, 
if it's a relative, if it's a friend, he wants to help where he can, and he'll tell them, you know, if they need to go be seen for something, he'll tell them that. Somewhere things cross the line, right? And definitely there are doctors who do feel more put upon and feel like it's too much for them who get it more often. And I think, I think for myself, my current thinking, I guess, as far as the teaching versus the Dvar Torah versus the class versus the, you know, whatever it is, I think part of the question that we have to ask ourselves as communities asking people to do things is whether we're asking somebody because they're a professional or because they're a member of the community. If somebody's asking me to edit, let's say, so I'll give the example, um, one of the shows that we go to, I edit an annual Torah journal and a monthly Torah page for the show. The writers are members. We don't ask, you know, occasionally I'll reach out to someone because I know that they are comfortable doing this sort of thing, but I'm asking them as a show member. I'm not, I'm not ever asking anyone as a professional. I actually get paid a little bit <laughs> for, for the editing um, because I'm doing that as a professional. When I write, I don't take extra salary for that. When I write for it, as I do, I try not to do too often, do it myself, we want other voices, but I possibly write more often than most other members. I would never take, you know, expect to be paid for that because when I write, I'm writing as a member. When I edit, I'm editing as a professional. And that's, that makes a difference to me. Um, that sounds like a very good I distinction. Think that, I think that's something that we need to ask ourselves, right? If I, I've given Divertara for, you know, community things right, where I never would have, you know, thought that they, for a second that they would pay me. I've done it other times where I thought they should pay me, but they didn't. There's a lot of gray area in this. You know, certainly you can never go wrong with being upfront about things when you ask someone, uh, especially if they happen to be a professional as well as a community member. Um, but I think there are, there are definitely times that it makes sense to ask a member of the community to do something, you know, the same way you would ask a psychologist who happens to have an interest in Tara and, and would give a Dvar Tara. So you could ask a teacher who happens to, you know, maybe be able to give a Dvar, a Dvar Tara. Um, I think communication and respect are always good things and always to be aware of those lines and the blurriness of those lines. I'd like to move the conversation a little bit into your own personal experience, Sarah, and I'll ask, I guess, a loaded question of sorts. Do you think your own personal experience and the problem that you've experienced with this has been exacerbated by the fact that you don't have the title rabbi before your name? Now, I'm not trying to adjudicate whether or not women should get smicha. That's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking whether or not the yeah. fact that women don't have smicha, <laughs> right or wrong, makes it even more difficult for them than it might for somebody who has smicha. I think we would need to do some sort of very careful study and data analysis to really answer these questions. Um, and I'm not just trying to avoid the question, I really believe <laughs> it. And I'll tell you, when I wrote that article, some of the comments that I got and some of the discussions that I saw on social media about this article had people sort of bringing up the gender, you know, the gender disparity and saying that, you know, and of course this is worse for women, or, you know, oh, it's, or it's because you're a woman. And I sort of felt like it was diminishing the impact of what it was that I was actually writing about, which was not a gender issue at all. I've never had anyone give me in any, obviously I never know what anyone's thinking, but I've never had cause in any of my interactions around this to feel like the person, you know, being more or less likely to pay me had anything to do with the fact that I was a woman. When I wrote the article, the people who reached out to me with their atrocious anecdotes um, sometimes of expectations they had faced um, in their own careers, I didn't keep a tally. The definitely, the numbers were very similar of men and women. I think it might have been more men than women who shared their stories with me. And these were all men, going back to the title rabbi, these were all men who had the title rabbi in front of their names, who reached out to me and said, you know, I'm so glad that you wrote this. It's awful. I'll tell you what happened to me 20 years ago. I think there are definitely ways that I could imagine a gender disparity in this. You know, people talk about women not being as confident asking for a raise. 
you know, in whatever profession. And I think this is very similar. So to whatever extent that's a social reality, I haven't done that study either. Um, but certainly, you know, this would fall into the same in the same issue, right? If you're if we're put in a position where we have to ask to be paid, then it's possible that would be more difficult for women, um, socially right. speaking, than for men. But I almost wonder whether this particular issue um, of ex expectations to be do work for free might be worse for those with rabbi in front of their name because it becomes once you're called rabbi there's like an expectation that you serve the community right and somebody who has that title might not even have a communal role or communal job right they might not be working for a shul or whatever it is but still i think there's this expectation oh but this person's a rabbi they should do this you know that's their job well, whose job who's paying for their time and you know that's taking away from other things they might want to do or you know it's again i haven't done that data analysis but i wonder if it could almost go the, the other way as far as the title yeah i wonder you know you and i both know the rambam and hilcha talmud torah in Paragimel talks about how torah should be free obviously people who follow the halachic process so to speak and understand how halacha is manifest and actualized in the world realize that that is not the standard psak halacha according to the vast majority of opinions. But I do wonder, I'm curious what you think about this, how much that sort of thinking has changed the way people treat Jewish professionals or Jewish educators or Torah educators rather than other professionals. Maybe people are almost subconsciously channeling the Rambam and saying, well, Torah belongs to everybody. Torah is not something right. which is your possession and therefore you should give it to us for free. Or maybe on the other hand, People just don't respect Jewish professionals enough. What do you think? I think it's a lot of things. Um, you know, it's hard. The, you said there are sources, right? There are definitely sources, um, but there are other sources too, right? So the people who learn the Rambam, I hope, have done their research and learned through the sources and how that's been applied and understood and practiced through generations of halachic observance in Torah-oriented communities. There's a part of me that wishes I could just give Torah for free, right? Ultimately, it's not Torah that I'm giving that was given to us many years ago already. What I'm giving is my thoughts on Torah. And what I'm giving is my time. And what I'm giving is my understanding of what people before me have said, of their, you know, much more important and worthy thoughts on Torah. And those are the things that do belong to me to some degree. And I want to share them with the world, but I can't share them with the world if I don't have food on my table, right? I can't share them with, with the world if I don't have a roof over my head. Thank God, I personally am not, you know, Baruch Hashem, it's not that dire, but <laughs> but for many people it is. And these these are real issues. It's just not reasonable in the current economic reality or the way the economics have been set up for the past however many centuries um, to expect that people are going to be able to do this for free. Certainly many people can, and many people do. There's a part of me that wishes that I could. Honestly, though, there's with our society, the way it is, you know, would I feel differently if we lived 500 years ago, a thousand years ago? Uh, who knows how much of this has been shaped by my society, but it's, it's very hard for me to think about. If I were independently wealthy, would I do this for free? And I'm not sure, um, because there's a piece that also feels like we want to feel like we're appreciated and being paid for something that we contribute is often a way that we can feel appreciated. Like this one organization I mentioned that does a great job of showering me with praise and appreciation whenever I, I give them something. Um, so that's a form of payment also, but we don't often get that. And paying for something is one way that we show value. That is real, I think. And I don't think that, you know, however much I might personally talk about, let's say, the demands on my time for my kids and, you know, I have to weigh, am I giving this time to teach Torah or to write an article or whatever it is versus spending more time with my kids? So obviously not everyone has that particular shikul, um, but people have their own shikulim. And part of that, I think, is a sense of self-respect and being valued. And we shouldn't sneeze at that. You know, that's real for a lot of people and it's worth, and it's worth something. 
Have you noticed any change since the article came out? Has it actually had any practical effect in the way people have treated you? For me, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. The, well, I'll tell, I'll tell you one funny thing. I, it may have been a coincidence, but like, as it happened, like a day or two after the article came out, uh, maybe the day it came out, I don't remember, I got an email out of the blue from somebody asking me to do something and telling me upfront what the pay would be right there in that email. And, you know, I wondered at the time, well, wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable asking, uh, but I wondered at the time whether the person had seen the article and that's what made them think of me for this, if that's, you know, if that somehow jogged something, but I'll never know if that's what, what it was. Um, on an ongoing basis, I really haven't noticed anything, but, you know, so I'm not sure if, if it's made a difference. Um, it could be that there are people who are more careful to be sensitive about payments when they talk to me, but I don't know if that's because of the article or because we've had ongoing conversations where I defended myself enough times that they <laughs> that they got the points. Well, I can certainly say that from my perspective, it was something which meant a lot to me because I have a very good friend who's also a rabbi. And there are times when I teach a class or I'm involved in a certain event in leadership capacity, that he'll say to me, you were paid, right? because he sees it almost as incumbent upon Jewish professionals, sort of as a guild, as a group of professionals together, to support each other by making sure that we insist upon being paid. It's not just about whether I want to be paid, it's about whether people look at educators in general as deserving of payment. And your article certainly brought that to light for me and many other Jewish educators, and I appreciate it. Good, I'm so glad to hear it. Let me just conclude by asking one last thing, Sarah. If you could just say it in one or two sentences, what you'd like to change, how would you define it? In one or two sentences, what would you tell people? That's hard. <laughs> um, I would like people to realize that their Torah educators are professionals with lives and responsibilities and needs like anybody else, and to be sure that they're speaking to them with respect and communicating with respect and understanding. Sarah Rudolph, thank you very much for joining me today. This is very enlightening, and I hope people take it seriously, and hopefully your words, both on this podcast and in that article in the foreword, will really affect change for the better. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast provider. If you like this podcast, please help us out by sharing it on Facebook and Twitter. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for lots of great podcasts, including The Orthodox Conundrum, Intimate Judaism, The Francisca Show, Chochmat Nashim, The Maimonides Minute, and more. When you're there, make sure to sign up on our new Patreon page, where for as little as $2 a month, you can gain access to premium content like Ask the Rabbis, get excellent merchandise, and more. I'm Scott Kahn. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.